0: So the riots in France are a very good distraction, just just like the uh, the cloud over America from the Canadian fires. It was a very good distraction. It's not that it wasn't real. It's super real. Like and and the riots in France. I want to know more of what you know, Doctor Koontz, because I've only seen a few pictures and I thought, oh my. Um, but then I've I've also known about thought about other types of things. Uh, ISO. Two oh oh two two uh, monetary law, global policy, things that people don't pay attention to anyway, but, but when there's something that could be paid attention to, cause it's like never happened before. Um, and then that thing is overshadowed by other louder, more crisis like information. And this other one's just supposed to be kind of like business as normal, but it's not, it's a big change. That's when my, my, my nose says, I remember 2020 <laughs> and, and I start to think a little more what's going on here. But I think that's a, that's a great yeah. intro into just like, what's going on? I mean, Fran- France is in trouble, a lot of trouble.
1: I, yeah, and I, I don't think that there are levels of distraction or 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 reality exactly. I think that what you're dealing with is that when you have demographic change, and we'll talk about that in the whole context of the history of French colonization, because France has the people that it has in its country largely because of its colonial history is that demographic or population or or immigrant or political transformation just occurs on a very different timeline than monetary transformation. So whereas monetary and financial changes can occur rapidly at this point because of communication technology, and in a way that even if it's occurring in the open, and you can explain better than I can what that change exactly was, but even when it occurs in the open, is relatively poorly understood. Whereas people living near you now who aren't like you, don't speak the same language, etc. that generally is just going to take much longer to occur, but also really has to be messaged in a very different way and much less openly because the change is much more radical long-term, though it was slower in coming. So I think when you're thinking about let's say, various topics that we cover on the show or that you yourself, the listener, think about, there's going to be things that you're more or less interested in, things that seem more or less important to you. That's fine. Part of the reason that we talk about the variety and that I don't try to over-determine everyone's answers to everything is not only because of my own limitations, it's also because people are going to have vastly varying interests but the changes that have occurred in france are not unlike changes that have occurred in every western country since the second world war whereas monetary change which is something that you know carol quigley about whom we talked so much last year covers in such detail is both harder for people to understand and therefore honestly can be done more openly but also can come with a rapidity that just changes your life and you just kind of have to deal with it mm-hmm. that demographic or political transformation doesn't but once you look back you can see it coming a long ways so i mean before launching into french colonial history which is where i think you want to understand especially contrasts with what's going on right now the riots that are burning various places in france burning being an operative word in what we're going to talk about but maybe just that that notion of like topics and certain topics just move much faster right and even when they're moving people don't understand what they're you know what's going on with them but obviously cryptocurrency is 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 handled by the government differently than almost any other monetary topic right now in that if somebody donates to your church using cryptocurrency over a certain amount you need a qualified appraisal which you don't need for a vastly greater gift of stock, for example, to the same nonprofit. So obviously, the government is handling that differently in the same way that they handle immigration very differently than many other issues. And we'll talk about that. But just that kind of topical contrast, you know, anything before we kind of go into the background to these yeah, riots
0: yeah. well I really appreciate uh, you, you uh, assuming I could talk about it in detail the <laughs> genesis of my question is, <laughs> is that it seems mysterious to me yeah but the fact that there was this multi-year planned event that shifts the global currency laws international laws in order to do something about cryptocurrency that was timed to occur on a Friday afternoon before a four day weekend yeah I mean it just smells so bad <laughs> you know and so i, w- I want to understand so what actually happened what did they do and that's what i'm searching for is that just that that reporter answer because i can't seem to find that i just get the state well they all did this and then therefore therefore wef is going to control our currency and we'll be wearing uniforms by 2030 which know the guy said that too recently. I think so. I don't know. I don't want to tie it all together, but I do completely see your point that if someone in the globe is going to change the monetary policy, not much I can do. Um, if someone's going to be, you know, bringing rainbow flags and story hour to my local neighborhood, lots that I can do. Political transformation can be resisted. That's an excellent point, and I take that away from you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think financial, financial or monetary transformation in addition to the lack of understanding that we might have and lack of agency we might have, is also, it, it's always helpful to look at these things not as natural occurrences, which is the way they're talked about. So economic things are discussed in natural terms by modern people. And that that is partly because the ancient understanding of money as unnatural, that is, as a as a technological reality rather than a biological reality, has been forsaken in the modern age because the modern age, in a monetary sense, and this is this is its own show that I just haven't gotten around to, but the book that I'll use is called The Ascent of Money by a guy that's very much a house historian, really a hired gun for almost anything that an establishment could want, Niall Ferguson, is that monetarily, modern life means money is treated as a biological reality. So it's alive. So you talk about movement as if the movement is somehow natural, the way a fish swims in the water. And you talk about its changes and its regulations as if it is subject to the same kind of regulation that social scientists do in lots of parts of modern life. Therefore, what they're going to present you with and you have to accept, is that instead of money being a tool of state similar to a military, which is the way that money has always been used historically, right? The fact that the Massachusetts Bay Colony had its own money that it used locally, it didn't try to use it in England. It wasn't accepted in England, but it did use it locally. First, they had Wampum, and then they coined their own money called pine tree shillings, was an effect of their independence, right? Their functional independence. So money is a tool of state or it's a technology you could look at the same way you might look at guns or tanks. If you think of it as somehow natural, then you're going to look at it differently and you're going to talk about it differently. And its expansion into talking about the economy as if the economy is sick or healthy, like it's alive, right these are not just lazy metaphors these are telling metaphors so when somebody's using metaphorical language you want to ask yourself not only what is he saying right but why use that metaphor <laughs> right? right you know if a, if a pastor has ever used a story in a sermon and you and you've listened to the sermon and you're like that's a weird story <laughs> right? where did where did you get that story so when the metaphor is about something that is not alive somehow possessing biological reality. That's when you know that the worship of mammon either is ongoing or you're being invited to worship mammon, or as you buy into it, you yourself are indeed worshiping mammon. So this is because because you have to remember idols don't have a natural life. Isaiah has that extended discussion of idols as as to how they're made, just the technology of idol production. They don't have a natural life, so they need to take on a natural life. And in our society, they are widely talked about as if they are indeed alive and that we have to serve them. And that's that's the threat of a central bank digital currency. So that's the threat of internationally accepted standards of monetary production and handling of cryptocurrency, as well as the normalization of central bank digital currencies is that they're simply trying to determine the nature of the idle production. It's why I don't ever get terribly alarmist about this because I don't only see the problem as what the World Economic Forum or some part of the UN or the way that the European Union is beginning to cave on digital privacy or the fact that the EU was more resistant than the US regulators. It's not that those things are irrelevant, but I see them structured underneath the generalized idol worship and therefore not not as not as terrifying actually as the transformation wrought by French colonial history, right. Yeah. so that's yeah. so i i it's it's not that I don't rank topics, but I Certain topics I see as more salient than others. Yeah, that's really
0: that's... good. Yeah, I, I'm just following my nose for the game. Um, but what you're given there is once you find something with your nose, a good set of principles for knowing whether you should keep smelling it or not. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, hey, look, I used a metaphor. Pastor, why'd you do that one? I found it online. Um, That's <laughs> yeah, often the answer, right? Uh, <laughs> alarmism i want to say something about that uh because i am i'm very grateful that i am experiencing less and less alarmism even in the face of all the frankly more alarming things that people are shouting about which i i believe less and less i suppose yeah. is, is part yeah. of my calm um but with that also uh the the conviction uh that this game isn't over yet and by that I mean I, you know our Lord is going to return in his in his due time and uh, I think every night I you know, when it's a good night I, I think to myself something along the lines of maybe tomorrow morning you know like uh, when I wake up like that would be that'd be sweet right there right uh, yep. but that said, uh, there's still a lot of cows on this planet and reference you know confer Jonah chapter three. Uh, there's a lot of people left there's a lot of life here and our God is is not the guy who just like destroy stuff cuz and with that being true uh, I I am you're going to, you're going to maybe laugh at him because it's, it's your fault, but, uh, I'm, I'm becoming an optimist, (laughs) uh, here, here and there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I don't
0: believe that. Yeah. Good. Good. I I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. know it's, I hope I can prove it, uh, in the sense that and it's not about all things. I mean, I'm still going to be a pretty stinking realist about stuff, but, um, I have tremendous hope for the capacity of the Christians that are here right now to first off, uh, Turn down the volume on the alarm uh, and then take a a real deep breath and assess, you know, the walls of your house, the people in it, the walls of your church, the people in it, the streets in between. And then from there, decide that, no, it doesn't have to get worse here. And I'm the reason why. And I'm not alone. You know, uh, God is all around me, both in allies who are Christians and in, in men and women who he will he will curb them with kindness and hospitality and all manner of things. People, people want a better way. And right now, I mean, if Christians can't figure out how to convert people to our way of life right now, then we don't have one. And, and, but we have one, we do. <laughs> and so it's like, Oh wow, that, that's amazing. Um, why is this a new thing for me, Lutheran pastor for so long? I, I don't know. I think at different times and places, the Lord's going to, to call us to remember different portions of his word and I've been I've been tremendously blessed in the Rockford area to run into people from all variety of Christian denominations, but all manner of what we would call heterodox, right? We got real problems with their stuff, but frankly, we think they're still Christians. And all of them are experiencing, as the group that they are, solidification in their conviction that Jesus is in charge of this thing. And so, the more that I hear that, just from other people, Adam, just uh, how can I get worried about that? It's like, well, it looks bad. Um, <laughs> it looks bad. We had uh, my, my youngest daughter, um, uh, was missed by a car accident uh, a week and a half ago. They were, they were biking to church and, uh, uh, the car spun out of this pretty wide intersection within three feet of her, but debris was thrown and in fact hit her in the head, a small piece of debris, leaving a very, very small bruise, just an inch off her temple. And, uh, she's fine. Just scared. Uh, I wasn't there, but even as it was said to me by my wife, I had the last expected experience I would ever have was, was just joy. I was just, I was just, I didn't even care about the car crash. My daughter's right there alive. was just so joyful and, and a confidence that, well, duh, God was with us. Of course we're safe right now. And a confidence that if that were not the case and she were dead, I'd still believe in Jesus and he'd work it out. And I'm not going to lay that at your feet, Adam. I think that's Jesus' work in my life. But, um, you know, your your own optimism has has rubbed off. <laughs> and, I, and I pray that as we continue to criticize the world for all the problems it has, we should prophesy where we need to prophesy, uh, that this show is, is less about Jonathan being afraid and a lot more about uh, how uh, an eye that has good light in it can see a long way. So there's a thank you for you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. So let's talk about France.
1: (laughs) Let me just give a little synopsis of what's going on. And as we record this on July 6th, things have quieted down some since last week. So, But to explain what happened is that France's demographic situation, much like any Western countries, any industrialized countries, honestly, so including South Africa and even to some extent Japan, is that since the Second World War, racial, ethnic, almost any kind of demographic change you could imagine has has happened. France's configuration of that is very different than the United States. So whereas in the United States, you would have, particularly in the North, but even in the South, you'd have a majority white population. US is 90% white. That's not as white as France in, say, 1960, but it's very white compared to today. And then roughly 10% black, maybe a little bit Hispanic in the Southwest and a little bit Asian on the West Coast. And that's changed radically. And everybody knows that, especially since the 1965 Immigration Act. France is different. France is different as Britain is different because... Whereas almost anybody in the world has has and does come to the United States such that you know, when we say we have an open southern border, we don't we don't actually mean that most of the people coming to the United States in uh, immeasurably large numbers at this point since certainly since the Biden administration, but it's not like it's stopped under Trump. They're not really Mexican, exactly, right? I mean, that's part of the reason that, Mexico assisted at least the Trump administration in stopping some of them because they're not even Mexicans coming to the United States at this point. So that's different for almost any other country. And even Russia is different this way in that parts of the former Russian Empire were the Soviet Union or even things that predate the Soviet Union. Have come into Moscow and St. Petersburg and stuff. So in the in a country with a much more extensive colonial history, where the US's colonies, if you want to think of them in a realistic way rather than how do we describe them, right? US colonies would include things like Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, most extensively and, and largely to the extent that I, I think we even manufactured Fords in the Philippines at one point. Those places just are not large enough to make any kind of overwhelming demographic impact in the United States. That's very different depending on where people came from into a European country. So in the case of France, their colonial empire is largely Southeast Asian and North African. Their sub-Saharan population also comes especially from West Africa. And what happens is that that gets configured very differently in France such that the suburbs are where these ethnic, racial, religious, so intersectionality is a little helpful in, you know, watching how these things do or don't line up in any given case. So a lot of your Africans in France are going to be Christian. Some of them anyway. your North Africans are not. your Southeast Asians. Some of them are, are Roman Catholic. Many are not, but the largest population, by far, that isn't, you know, white French or just French historically speaking, right? White French is going to be North African and Muslims. Yeah, and they live in these banlieues that are around city centers and not rural. So you just have to kind of like reverse the racial situation of an American city, generally speaking, to understand how this works out. A couple weeks ago now, a teenager whose last name has not been released. Nachel M was shot by a police officer. So you have a situation that is very recognizable to Americans just under a with a very very different history, that, but the dynamic is the same, okay And the police officer is, I think, without I think without a doubt, he's white French, right? So he shoots this kid. He's now suspended and under custody um, and going to be charged with voluntary homicide. Right. So that's obviously a much more serious charge than involuntary homicide. What happens when Nahel is shot is that riots erupt all over France. And (laughs) so I said burning earlier, that's a callback to the, I don't think, terribly mysterious reality that as France's Muslim population has risen, burnings of churches and attacks on Christians, even the killings of priests have also increased. What's a little different here is that the riots are not exclusive to Muslims. So African Christians, African Muslim, I'm saying sub-Saharan, right? In addition to North African Muslims, everybody's rioting. Because what you get here is a dynamic that is, I think, understandable if you just like reverse the terms. It's just that usually we don't do that. And that is that... Immigration, which I think a lot of Christians look at as either neutral or very often it's looked at as a positive good in the church and church agencies are generally your biggest movers in the United States because of our, we call it nonprofit, but NGO structure, right? So Catholic Charities, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, which is <laughs> which is run by a Hindu, Church World Service, which is run by the Mennonites are going to bring in various groups. And then you have the other immigration structures on top of that in the United States. Those things are going to vary widely by jurisdiction. So in the US, it has a certain configuration, particularly tied to churches. In Canada, it has a different configuration. Quebec has its own, as it does many other things. France has its own. So France is privileging people from former colonies, right? It's going to be harder for me, a white American, to immigrate to France or Australia or Britain then it's going to be for somebody from a former colony of either the British, what's now the British Commonwealth or the French Empire to immigrate to a British Commonwealth country or France respectively, right? So that's just the way, that's the way it works. So what's happening here is these sort of quiet down. The other factoid to know is that very similar to Daniel Penny and who did, who's the guy that, was on the that Daniel Penny put a chokehold on. I don't remember the guy's oh, name. Jordan oh, yeah. Steele. Yeah. Is yeah. that it? I
0: don't Jordan know. But I remember the story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So Daniel Penny puts a chokehold on this guy who is a felon and is supported by felons and right. And, but the same dynamic happens with this police officer and this teenager is that Daniel Penny raised way more money. I mean well, people raised way more money for Daniel Penny, I think on Give Sun Go, than were raised for Jordan Steele, Jordan Steele's family, right? Same thing with the police officer in France. They actually shut down a GoFundMe. Maybe that was his mistake. They shut down a GoFundMe run by this guy named Jean Messija, who is, uh, well, you're always going to hear him as far right, but you know what that term. <laughs> that term means that the journalist says that your right-wing opinion is unacceptable. That's yeah. all that the, yeah, yeah, right. And so they raise a ton of money, right? I, I want to say it's like mil, more than a million euros. For the police officers defense, <laughs> but they receive death threats and leftist parties in France, which are much more virulent and, and proportionately large, right? So France politically, you would, all, you would almost have to recognize this, like politically, it's skewed. Maybe it's not California, but it's like much closer to California than the entire United States is considered as a country. So... He shuts down this GoFundMe because of threat death threats, <laughs> and part of the rage felt against Masiha's fundraising for the officer's defense is that he far outraised <laughs> the fundraiser for Nahal M's family. So you just you're dealing with the reality that this has been a long time coming. The colonial history that I want to call it back to is that one of the one of the ironies here is that there's actually a war to get whites out of Algeria, which is probably France's premier colony, but it's a war largely between French forces, including Algerians, and Algerian, they're going to be called liberation fighters or however you want to, but you get the picture, right? And in sort of caught in the middle of that, and certainly supportive of continued French rule over Algeria in the 1960s are the people known in French as the Blackfeet, Les Pieds Noirs. And those are, they're called Blackfeet because of the work that they did in turning Algeria into an economically and agriculturally especially productive place during French colonization. So what, the the way that I'm looking at these riots is that uh, that are happening right now or are, are quieting down whatever that means i don't know if that's the same thing as mostly peaceful protests but it's a result of a very long process of decolonization and then colonization of the mother country by whatever colonial populations there were there's a sense in which it's hard for me to take all of this terribly seriously because if you just found you know white Europeans so objectionable, you wouldn't live with them, like presumably, right? Like <laughs> like, like if somebody if somebody smells so bad that you just can't stand him and you want to verbally denounce him incessantly, theoretically you would leave the room, you know. But this, so this is this is something where, and we've talked about this in different ways before in the show, actions are much more powerful than words. Because actions show you, especially someone's choice of where does he live and how does he make his living, right? So your former colonial populations in France are also largely um, paid by the government to live. I mean, they're not, they have high unemployment rates and they're not necessarily trying to bring them down. If that's the case, then what you're ultimately dealing with is you want to be here with me, right, where there's like winter. As opposed to in Algeria or Senegal, you want to be here with me and you want to have the benefits of living here and you want to riot if somebody that you're identifying with is is shot, but you don't actually want to not live here. Like I'm horrible and I'm evil and I'm objectionable, but you want to live next to me. Okay, got it, right? and I, I think that it's it's kind of helpful to see present-day demographic movements, trends, why is everyone still wanting to come to the United States over the southern border? There's not nearly as much economic opportunity as there used to be.
0: Yeah, but it's there, helpful there is if you those... can figure this grift out and you're in the right demographic.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, yeah that's true. I mean, it's to, to my mind, it's like, okay, I, I think the, the, word, the word grift is helpful because it's like, the thing about a grifter is that he's a very short term thinker. Like he might be clever, Mm. but it's a very short term thought. Like Mm -hmm. if I look at South Africa, I can see what's going to happen if you take the people that made the country industrialized, which is in that case, whites and maybe Indians industrialized South Africa, but definitely whites. You take those people, then you punish them for existing. So many of them leave. So now you don't have the productivity that you were That you can't, that you wanted, right? Right. I mean, South Africa actually shares this with the United States in that it has tons and tons and tons and tons of illegal immigrants. Hmm. In the case of South Africa, they're from elsewhere in Southern Africa generally, right? But they're there for economic opportunities that are being systemically crushed by punishing people, in my case, just straight up for being white. And so it's usually not that blatant in a France or the United States. But it's like, okay, like, you're, here's your grift, right? So your grift is, you know, I'm, I'm not white. I was oppressed, whatever, right? And this is, I mean, intersectionality is helpful, right? Because if you're applying for a business license and you have a, you have a carve out for minorities or whatever, right, it is more helpful to be a woman than to be a man so the progressive stack that we talked about that you saw probably in public for the first time in a widespread way at occupy wall street so that's 12 years ago now i think that that does matter it just doesn't matter that much for the purposes of say like rioting right so the grift though is going to go on and on and on and on the problem is it's it's just non productive so I guess there's something that always comes up when we have things like this in the United States, and it's a question of what is just. So you knew as soon as Derek Chauvin was charged with killing George Floyd that he didn't stand a chance. Like you knew that. Like it's over, right? If if you're in a court and you are a white person charged with a crime against a non-white person, it's over. So that's a question of justice. But behind the question of justice, I think, is whether whether immigration is just or unjust. And you might need immigration for certain purposes, maybe. Like we used mass immigration to basically people the American West in the 19th century. But the question is – immigration is also a question of justice. It's just usually only framed in terms of the immigrants' right – to the economic future offered by a country that is not his own, right? So then he comes here and that's his opportunity. And that's like great for him. But if you just go back a little bit in history, even labor unions, which have always been leftist in all kinds of ways, whatever that, you know, however the spectrum was configured, they were on the left of it somehow. Labor unions used to be almost uniformly anti-immigrant everywhere in the west including the communist one in france because it the, the basic injustice of the you know employers working with your government can bring an almost unlimited supply of labor to bear mm-hmm. so if 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 you're bidding against three other people for a job that's very different than if you're bidding against 3000 other people for a job right so that that's a question of justice and then there's also the question of okay, what, well, where where is a Frenchman supposed to go? <laughs> you know, like, is he allowed to go to Senegal and have France in Senegal? Like, no. Like, so it only works in one direction, right? The irony is that the Blackfeet in France, there's about a million of them that are moved at the end of French rule and the beginning of Algerian rule in Algeria. They're moved to France. So they're the source. If you've ever seen the movie, The French Connection, they're sort of brought in there as, as a plot element because their encounter with betrayal by the various kind of post-war Gaullist regimes, right, either by General de Gaulle or by his the party that carries his mantle after him, they are to the right of that and very, very suspicious of that. So they're brought in as this sort of like extremist plot element, right? The, the significance of them is they have already experienced betrayal. So you can work and work and work and work for something and you build it up and you build it up and you build it up. And, it up. and then it just gets, to, the government says, no, that can go away, right? We don't care about that. Mm-hmm. So there, there, to me, there's also an injustice there in that you never, and, and significantly, you never get a rhetoric about white people being native to anywhere, not even Europe, right? Let alone the United States. You never get that because that rhetoric is powerful for saying, oh, this person has like a just claim on something (laughs) because it's his house or it's his business or it's the church they built up in the Middle Ages. So the way that this was then handled in France is very telling today, the riots today, is that Macron, I mean, it was so bad he didn't even go next door to Germany to have this meeting that was scheduled with Steinmeier, but Macron said it was due to bad parenting and video games.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> Obviously, that's all it was.
1: And it's like, I don't like video games anymore. I probably like them less than Macron does, but I don't think they're to blame for all of society's I think you, you know You
0: can blame video games for why people won't look you in the eye, but they're not, you're not yeah. going to blame it for why they're shooting at people. They got other things going on. And, right. and in terms of the right. riot, I mean, clearly you have you have a fostering animosity between tribes that's been allowed to go and go. And it's clear to some of them that they do not have a political process open them anymore. And so they've been pushed against the wall and a dog that's in the corner is going to bite you. And so it is uh, that's my take on it from very far away. Macron, though, I mean, this yeah. guy, I just don't get him. I mean, he, he makes Zelensky. Zelensky looks good, like super talented. That guy knows what he's doing. And I don't think that's really true. But beside Macron. Macron, I kind of get that feeling, but maybe Macron has is, is got like the, the useful stooge down and that's just as high as he can rise. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Is that it?
1: Yeah. that. Well, that's right because Macron is very different from another man that was very much affected by the riots, which is the mayor of Paris, who is named jean Blanc. And his family was attacked. Yeah. I saw that. He was at yeah. work. You saw that. Right. So his five and a seven-year-old are hurt. His wife- I think they broke her leg. Wow. Macron is different because not only does he have his very strange wife, he has no children. And mm-hmm. that's something that I think people began to notice over COVID, maybe when they had time to sit at home and study these things. But that you should have noticed over a long period of time is that we increase. And this this has something to do with our marriage patterns. It has something to do with the various causes of infertility exploding in the developed world, but Macron has no children. And it's not that that you know affects one standing in the kingdom of God, but the issue for today's church, as well as for the various nations that we're part of, is that Satan is not generally attacking us very directly inside the kingdom of God. He's generally attacking the kingdom of God through the kingdom of this world, Hmm. right? So when he's messing, for instance, with the orders of creation and saying that, you know, you if you make yourself a eunuch, you will be happy for the rest of your life. Whether you are a figurative eunuch for your work, or you're a literal eunuch for the sake of your gender dysphoria, whatever it is, if you make yourself a eunuch, then you will be happy is that that completely divorces you from a person's natural life progression? Yeah. Where the reason that you have a stake in this world is because you have children and descendants.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you were so going to say something yeah. like that. All of our elites are becoming increasingly like childless, or was that what you were kind of saying? If-
1: I, yeah, and I think people notice that. Right. Is is that that obviously affects? I mean, it's sort of like. It's, it's a much more visceral version of the same thing where up to and including the Second World War, our, our elites in Western countries participated in the wars that they themselves got us into. There was always an age dynamic there that was a problem, certainly since the Mexican War in the United States where... Generally, the people that send us to war have been quite a bit older than the people who go to war, but usually the thing that we relied on was that that man himself had gone to war. Maybe in the case of the United States that he was not himself any longer a soldier, but that he had gone to war. If, if I'm trying to appeal to Macron either about war or just about riots in my own country and I say, he's destroying my family's legacy and this business that my grandfather built up and I'm trying to give to my kids... Or you're asking him to imagine a future in which a French child is mocked in his school for being French, which occurs already. That just doesn't matter to somebody that has no French children, you know? And so if you're asking somebody to rule over a country from which, for which he does not suffer and that his legacy is really just about him, right? And, and decisively about him, then you have obtained rule by eunuchs. Because I mean, why does he care? Now, the, the mayor of Paris, who knows what's going to happen with him or what he's going to say, you know, in two years time. But obviously, it has a very different effect on you if you have a family and they are threatening your family than otherwise. I mean, this is this yeah. is
0: I was also you know, kind of surprised to see that the mayor of of Paris was who he was. Um, yeah, he, right. He, I mean, a, a white French guy. I, yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I was surprised. <laughs> right, I, I, right? I, I feel yeah, weird right. about that, but I was. Um,
1: yeah, well, I mean, the mayor of London is not a white exactly. British
0: man. Exactly. Right. 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 So, um, just to to reference, since you said it, you know, uh, Macron is doing making decisions for which he does not suffer. Um, the entire point of skin in the game might seem to leave it's nonetheless worth your read listener uh, skin in the game uh, building and, and driving home this reality that it, the further you remove yourself or anything is removed from from the risk. Associated with the action, the more the entire system becomes destabilized, and eventually must overreact to compensate for those who've been avoiding risk. Those who do not suffer and do not lead lead to destruction. It is just a fact. It's um, kind of the game missing to lead. So uh, I, I had another one, but lots lost it, it. go. Go.
1: Yeah. Well, and I I think that that's a, that's a that's a that's a severe structural defect today. So you could say, if you wanted to look at the way that the West is structured. Whether the supposed impersonality of the law, that we're a government of laws, not of men, but also the way that we are actually practically governed. And this goes for both the state, but it also goes for lots of private entities, including the church, is that we're structured bureaucratically. And that was an aping of the most successful invention of the past 300 years, structurally speaking. Successful, I'm not saying good, I'm sort of saying bad, but I'm not necessarily saying it's all bad. And that is a corporation. And so if you learn that by division of office labor, that's what a bureau is, and it's ruled by, by the office, that's a bureaucracy. If you divide that up and you know that that's a good way to get lots of work done and get work done in an impersonal, efficient way, that's the way that things are set up. And this relied historically in the West and especially in France on meritocracy. So France is notable from the French Revolution onward, other things could be said about the French Revolution for the promotion of people by impersonal test rather than the way that what we call in the United States affirmative action works, which is by the group that you belong to. So that's obviously changed everywhere, right? Everyone is subject to DEI in some way or another. So you're already eviscerating the system that way if you have DEI. DEI, to my mind, is a much more advanced version of bureaucratic sickness. But bureaucracy is sick in this way too, that it structures your life very differently than you want people governing you, either in church or state or anything, to think. So a person who's trying to govern the church needs to think, as someone who's governing the state, needs to think about if he possibly can, how his decision is going to play out in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years. That's one reason, for example, that you make a hard decision today so that you don't have to make a much harder decision in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, right? Especially after you're dead. Bureaucracy structures your life such that the older you get, the better you're doing, right? And so all the way up to that point, you accommodate and accommodate and accommodate, you're not really thinking the only future you're thinking about is your own future, right? This is something that people say about boomers as a generation sacrificing their careers, sacrificing everything to their careers, right? And that that might be true of them in a unique way, although I think the divorce rate was actually higher among their parents, honestly. But I, I get what people are saying there and I get that that's the dynamic that occurs. For lots of people, right? But I think it's a structural defect of the way that we set things up, right? So somebody said to me, you know, you should, you should be Senate president someday. <laughs> and I said, and I wasn't joking, why do you hate me that much? Yeah. <laughs> the reason I said it that way was because what happens then is that your life is delayed and delayed and delayed. And the thing about what you're aiming for is that along the way, Lots of things have to be sacrificed. So it's not that you're not, you could be gaining wisdom, you could be, you know, you could be serving and and doing good things, and you could be doing the same thing if you've chosen a different career track. But when your life is set up bureaucratically, so this goes for doctors, because now doctors have to be herded into larger organizations. You're not necessarily just a family practice guy somewhere you know, near where you grew up or something anymore, you're not financially independent of the organization, this obviously goes for enormous government bureaucracies of all kinds, including the Department of Defense, and on and on and on, is that your life is a continual appeasement of the authorities that are going to get you advanced in that life. And of course, some people are more useful than others for that purpose. And somebody that has no children is way more useful than I am. So, if that's going to happen, then what what you've done by the time that you arrive at the point that you you're trying to reach, so you you're really realistic and you believe in the personality tests that were administered to you. So you say, I'm a behind the scenes guy. So you just ever you only ever want to be number five in whatever thing you're doing, right? Whatever, and that that might seem like humility to you because you don't want to be number one, right? But whatever it is the the point is by the time you get there you are a different person than when you started now in a completely otherwise neutral functional situation that might be okay like some people might be better sitting in offices than dealing face to face with other people or you know whatever like and some people have administrative talents that other people don't have that are better at in a military situation combat but you need the administrator too so you have the stuff that you need for combat right This doesn't have to necessarily be a problem unless the people that don't have to answer for their decisions are the people who are ruling. So the issue here is not the existence of offices. It's the existence of rule by offices. Yeah. To me, that's one of the signal dysfunctions in both church and state that we have today is rule by offices because when you're in an office, you are by definition insulated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, ironically, um, I was doing an etymology on bureaucracy this week and, um, the, the resource I used, which was an AI, um, not chat though, uh, it, it tied it back to, um, bureau, uh, back to the word desk before the word office and called it rule from the Hmm. desk. And I thought that was just incredibly powerful. Yeah. And and then um, with that now, there's this other, you know, piece that I I know you and I have talked about this before, but it's worth bringing back in and maybe even asking you, you know, do you see an immediate distinction? Um, Because technocracy is an interesting, similar, problematic, spiritual, philosophical, whatever, cosmology. Um, They they aren't disruptive from each other. In fact, most people who are, in a bureaucracy are at a desk with the technocracy running them from the desk, right? So there, I, is there really a distinction there? Are they are they more of the same thing? Um, corporation is a completely different kind of word. Uh, and so it goes in a different direction. But I, you know, when I compare, yeah. say, bureaucracy, technocracy, meritocracy, democracy, those latter two are really clearly distinct from each other. Bureaucracy yeah. and technocracy, I'm not so sure.
1: Technocracy is kind of two different ways you can go on this on the one hand it seems to me that it's just a subset of bureaucracy yeah right okay right and yeah. because you get you get and the reason i'm saying that is because you get the same types of people right you get the same distance the same sense of rightness that they're calling it the right way the same distancing especially from the plebs the unwashed masses who you know have to actually deal with riots and stuff like that so it seems to me that technocracy is just a certain subset of bureaucracy under differing techno-historical circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's like
0: we, we added electricity. It's, it's <laughs> bureaucracy with electricity. I like
1: On that. the uh, Yeah. On the other hand, okay, so this is not a contradiction because what I just said, I just mean, and now I'm speculating a little bit, is that technocracy <laughs> might actually be worse, like distinct in its Yes, and it's horror. Yes. Be- because of the much greater hubris involved in technological change. Yes. Yes. Well, I
0: mean, if if, if my little kind of run of it, technocracy is bureaucracy with electricity. I mean, you had to charge anything, it gets bigger and blows up more. So, so <laughs> you know, uh, but to push back to just the rule of the desk and, and the yeah. connection there to isolation. Uh, you know, the desk in fact isolates a desk is not built for two people. Uh, and even, right. even when you have an office space with desks, there's the desk that you don't get behind and someone else is behind it and, right. and all that. And so, uh, that person is by definition sending memos out from their desk. They're not where the work is being done, which I don't think that means that you can't have a boss at a desk and someone where the work is being done. Um, but it it does mean that if the person at the desk has no vested interest, has no skin in the game, has no yeah. understanding of where the worker is, uh, it's going to create a significant problem. I don't know if you know, this was something that the U.S. Military mm-hmm. Marine Corps particularly faced troubles with uh, in the second Iraq war, uh, wherein Uh, They had commanders initially really trying to run things from behind the scenes without without listening or understanding what was going on on the ground. And it led to a, a overhaul of the way that they structured their, their team bases um, uh, in the Marine Corps on the front lines uh, with a dispersed leadership kind of philosophy where you definitely have a chain of command. But like once you're sent out with the mission and you have a job, like there's parameters are like don't do this, don't do this. But right. after that, you're, you're empowered to be effectively the boss entirely because you're there, right? You're not right. far away. If some guy's in your ear and you have to check everything with him before you make a decision, you never you lose. Is what happens? Is you lose? Right? Yeah.
1: It's going to be a challenge in anything that actually needs desks. So, even if you're running a plumbing business, this is going to be a challenge. Correct. But yeah. so so it's so it is perennial, but it's also perennially witnessed, obvious, important, clear. That the one who is willing, not only to be behind the desk, is actually very easily the most valuable commander. That's the guy you want at the desk, right? And it's not. A, and I, I want to say this very clearly, especially for my church, because fake humility is such a virtue among us. I mean, it's such a performative virtue. Well, I really just want to be this, but you know, well, okay, yeah. Uh, I'm
0: but- I'm no theologian, Adam, but I'm not sure I agree with what you said. <laughs>
1: Um, but this is, you know, this is not a matter of like, the guy is pretending he doesn't actually want to fly a desk. What it means is that the guy is actually capable of doing something other than flying the desk that would make him capable of helping people who are not themselves flying desks. If that's all he can do, that's what he's good at. Let him do that. Don't let him command. Yeah, right. Because, well, so so
0: peacetime yeah, general, wartime general there a little bit, is that a, is that a fair thing to say? Because there's a time when you need the guy just to run the numbers and get everything organized, but then that'll kill the business eventually if you don't, you know, move him aside and bring in the guy to innovate.
1: Be, well, because, I mean, I can imagine uses for somebody like Macron, right? He's, he Clearly can always he's, stay late. He's he can risen always, very he, high. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Someone's
0: he, using him. <laughs> Sorry. He,
1: he can always stay late, you know, and so... Um, yeah you know uh, that that's great that's really nice but i don't want somebody that doesn't have particularly with the state yeah. because the state's legacy would be continuing peace and order he obviously has very little practical probably no practical desire to see those things because they don't affect him if you remember the the events of January sixth, twenty twenty one, whatever those events were and however they were caused, significantly, what happened in in France and, and what happened in twenty twenty in the summer in the U.S. were not called insurrections, even if they presented a, a threat to just your ability to walk down the street. But remember how terrified many of the legislators were. I mean, just just sprinting like in a in a manic, embarrassing way in the Capitol. In 2021. That is almost <laughs> the only thing that gets them to realize that their job is actually to perpetuate the sword, that their job is fundamentally violent and visceral. That That's their job. And when they can't ensure that that's actually happening to people who are burning down buildings, burning down churches, burning homes, beating up five-year-old girls, When that's not happening, then what you're witnessing is a late stage version of colonial conflict. Because if you look back at France's colonial history or Portugal's or Britain's, when when the colonial rulers decided not to rule anymore, and for most colonies that happens after the Second World War, Europe and Europeans are just completely demoralized. They don't believe in themselves or anything that they're doing anymore. So it doesn't matter if they brought clean water for the first time, they're demoralized is that you get the same kind of unrest, and that that unrest is what precedes what we call, in our kind of hands-off sort of a way, regime change. That you can't have decades and decades of Macrons and actually keep a country, because the country is actually kept... By the power of the sword. Right. That's right.
0: now isn't the yeah. attention uh, someone's gonna say, uh, to get rid of France. I mean, that's kind of the idea here is that the the bigger game is Europe has to become a solo uh identity. We're already well on that way. The last thing remaining is cultural ed- heritages of the ethnic groups right. that were there in the first place.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, and and that's that immigration works as a kind of solvent for a nation, that it turns the nation more and more into an impersonal space. And that that impersonal space, therefore, is not only more easily ruled because people have nothing in common with each other. The tiny version of that is that Amazon doesn't like to hire people from the same ethnic group, right, even, um, especially if they're immigrants and they have different languages. It, because then rule is just easier with a diverse population. With a hum, with a homogeneous population, it's just much harder to handle them. Bringing it all into a United States of Europe or something, I think, is, is long-term... This is one of their points of greatest hubris, is that if America has turned into a giant shopping mall, it's going to be a lot harder to do that to Europe. Also because Europeans have, in a way that I've only ever seen in the United States in parts of the Northeast and the South, have an actual sense of themselves tied to a place and a set of events and ancestors. And that's just harder to root out than trying to move somebody out of a suburb he's lived in for five years and his Mm -hmm. parents live in two other different states. So, if they don't get enough population mobility, they can still try to swamp them with immigrants who are not French and never want to be French and won't be French, but it's just going to be a lot harder to do than it will be in the United States because Americans are much less connected to place and time, generally speaking, than Europeans are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine the identity of a French man is significantly more visceral than the average yeah, American has right. with regard to his state. Right. 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 <laughs> like you like it and all, but it's not your language and stuff. So, um, let's see here. What's our clock looking at? we you got a few minutes left. We can do a little more. So I get, I, I don't, for the record, you know, if I'm going to go spitballing conspiracies, I think that the intention of the, um, the border collapse, the eventual border collapse within the mainland European region uh, is not meant to create a United States of Europe or to mimic um, what would be hap- what's going to go on over here. Uh, I think it's a little bit more of uh, it's going to create a, a, a giant pool of poverty underneath some mountains on the top of which the wealthy of the world flying in and out. So in one way, it's a giving over of the land uh, so that it can never be fought over again in the kind of way that it was. You can have riots in the streets of France, but nobody is going to conquer all of France uh, and take it away from uh, those banks that are running it. And and uh and that that's not a matter of just france it's a matter of europe that's a matter of the international banking system which is where my first question kind of still comes back to because BRICS becomes a part of this right as as the um those nations aligning with russia and china against us financially are are bailing out of uh the previous system and which then pushes things back toward say nato again as a um one of the more say a stronger operating identity than say france is in in the issue with france like who really wants what here um and the nato ideas and the for good or for ill wholesale ukraine or die approach nato has taken to the east um you know that's that's the ride we're on um and uh that would be, the, you know, I, I think that game plan, it makes sense for elites to not care about if if, you know, Paris gets sacked because at the end of the day, they're not planning to live there anyway. They can't. What they want to do is ensure a transition to a world where they can control the resources and where they're safe from crypto making a free market. Um now that probably betrays a little of my philosophy but but there we okay. go I want I wanted to spitball that a little bit cuz it's I don't think it's no one's trying to mimic I mean the, the US is also supposed to be where everybody goes so that the wealthy can leave here and go somewhere else right they're they're funneling us all into a place where where we have promises that are fake but they're building better places in Dubai
1: Yeah and the exact future of that I think is a little imprecise because certainly since The Second World War, but even since the first, the combination of centralized banking and American military power has been what ensures what is now called the international order. And the building out of that from before the First World War was an American and European effort, but it was spearheaded in all of those countries by both people of Jewish descent and people of what the French call (laughs) Anglo-Saxon. And that is including Quakers kind of notably and and vastly disproportionately, but Jews disproportionately as well as they were in the Russian Revolution. So I see the international banking system as a tool of state power. Mm -hmm. It's just that the state is not constituted by borders or belonging or cities or right. countries. Right. Or, right. And so that's why they want to travel to Dubai and they want to travel. And everybody that I went to college with was both Jewish and had been everywhere so, except the middle of the country. Well, let me right? swing so, it a little
0: bit different way. Yeah. So so if you can imagine um that kind of hovering above what most people want to think is, you know, the room where the specter people get together and plot with their their seven member board that runs the evil world. As opposed to that, we have something that's far more medieval just on a very high level. And I think a real good example would be uh, Elon Musk as something of an upstart baron. Right. He, he, he on a global scale. He's like a baron. He's he's got land. And by that, I mean lots of Internet capacity. He's also got real land, too, by the way. But but he uses it in order to uh, fight in the Psyop war for control of the empire. Is there an actual emperor right now? Again, I don't want to pin the tail on the beast at all, but I want to suggest that most of the time what you're seeing is houses operating against houses or corporations uh individual men and their dynasties sometimes these are functioning as uh as countries the united states certainly you know pretends to be one of the great houses of the world um but if, if you can look from top down and see that medieval framework for my part it really explains why attempts to try to pin the tail on this whole thing is a waste of time you have you have a bunch of jockeying medieval groups fighting over the failed British empire and, and no one's come out on top of this thing yet. Um, so yeah, feel free to.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with the last, I, I don't even disagree with your framing. I, I think that it simply has greater specificity in any given case. So like with Elon Musk, his mother's Satanist like religious practices matter yeah. in how i assess every single thing that he says yeah. and so there are genealogies i mean literal and figurative of all of these things and that's that's part of what i try to do every week is that there are genealogies of these things and understanding them helps you understand why this is occurring such that i mean musk musk is a is is subordinate ultimately to funding and so where the funding comes from and, and how mm-hmm. the funding was started and, and what the people with the funding intend to do with it. Ultimately, is what is what matters in the modern world because we are so dominated by yeah. money.
0: Yeah, I, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, especially with the understanding that so I, I call Musk a baron, right? And I think in some yeah. ways he fights for freedom, so I'm glad for it. Although I don't trust him an inch and I you know, <laughs> at all. Um, but it, you know these houses that are out there, yeah. these uh, tribes is another way to think about it. Um, they're flying flags and symbols, and and in every instance. A Christian must believe these are religious symbols. <laughs> these are these are not, you know, just secular. They're not just worldly. Uh, they have things behind them, and so that's where again you can you can begin to see um, who the great the great fighters are, where their symbols are going, what they're fighting for, and you know that's what you're you're asking us to do with Musk. But I think we can do that with with almost everything. And, yeah. Uh, and I, yeah. Yeah. Good.
1: And I, and I think that we should because in the same way that a, a nobility is going to be composed in the Middle Ages by who has what pieces of land and how he occupies sovereignty over them, people in modernity have – there's at least two levels here. And the the one that is much more salient for most people because in in terms of our ancestors, most of us truly are slaves. We are completely dependent on the continued flow of money for our lives in a way that is not true with relative self-determination. So that level of money is not unreal, but it is still subordinate to the control of land. And that's why things like riots that are uncontrolled by state power for days and days and days, or the state's incapacity to perpetuate the electrical grid in South Africa or something, that, that all matters ultimately more because land still sustains sovereignty and the failure to occupy or to exercise sovereignty over land mm-hmm. even if you possess money ultimately makes you extremely fragile because you can be you can be deported you can be banned you can be whatever and that's how even wealthy men in the present day i i think are are very much slaves not only because they can't see their wealth or something, but because it doesn't it doesn't occupy a deeper level of sovereignty, which involves land and actual space and time and people and whether those people are punished or unpunished for injustices. So that's where I, it's not that I see money or technology or the internet as, as unreal, but I do see them as a secondary level. And the primary level of power is the capacity for a city not to burn down. I I know they don't care. I admit that. But the fact that it is burning down (laughs) is ultimately going to matter more long term in the same way that demographic change matters more long term than present day jockeying with the money supply or the sovereignty indicated by the money or things like that.
0: So as an aside, kind of. Part yeah. of Um comment, I I decided a while ago when I was really I was pushing hard for like a year and a half on a goal. I've had a lifelong goal to write a fiction novel, and I got several that are not done. I kept going round and round about this, and um, one morning I I wrote down on a card um, I really would rather try to convert Elon Musk than finish a fiction book, and uh, that's been the genesis of a lot of good thought for me coming out of that and I'd like to talk about this some more uh, in our next hour but um but with that said I did come across my my plate just this morning I can't take credit for this one but uh, you know Elon is a biblical name Elon is the grandfather of Amalek you're listening to a brief history of power you know where to find it sir you wouldn't be here the Hebrew Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford Illinois semi monastic boot camp for Christian living Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegian.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is
1: unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find... God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10:30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, Wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful Inland Northwest.